You have just completed an afternoon of telemedicine visits with your patients. Although many have been complaints with issues around rashes, fevers, and blood pressure medication, everyone wants to know about the coronavirus. Meanwhile, you receive 10 emails a day from various organizations all telling you that there are important things to read about coronavirus. You're feeling overwhelmed and maybe even a little sick yourself. Hi, this is Frank Domino, professor in the Department of Family Medicine and Community Health at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. And joining me today to discuss the evolving world of coronavirus is Dr. Paul Sachs, professor of medicine and in infectious disease at the Brigham and Women's Hospital uh, in Boston and a professor at the Harvard Medical School. Paul, thanks so much for joining me this morning. Oh, thanks for inviting me, Frank. So welcome, everyone, um, and thank you for your participation and contributions to this, this uh, question and answer session. Um, I want to get right to the questions, Paul. Um, as I noted above, people are asking all the time, who should be tested, how do I decide about testing, uh, et cetera. Can you just remind us a little bit about what the current recommendations are um, concerning who should be tested? Well, these recommendations are very much in evolution. And recall that when, when uh, COVID-19 first came to the United States, there was this critical shortage of tests. And so we had to prioritize testing for individuals who were either in the hospital or were actually quite sick with the illness. As testing becomes more broadly available, so should our criteria for testing go down. Uh, and I strongly encourage people to keep an eye on your own local testing requirements. Uh, institutionally, your institution might still be limiting testing to inpatients or people in the emergency department, but there are increasing number of sites available in the community where testing can be done and can be done safely. So whereas, you know, if we had this discussion as, as recently as two to three weeks ago, I might have said, you know, limit testing only to people with the following symptoms or the following comorbidities, Right now, I think we should really broaden our testing because we know that the spectrum of this illness is, is very wide. Um, since I started to talk about who's at high risk of getting severe disease, I should mention that it's been well established now in multiple studies that people who are older, uh, typically defined as older, older than 60 or 70, people with chronic lung disease, people with heart disease, people who are immunosuppressed, and people who are living in long-term congregate settings should, should definitely be prioritized for testing. Thanks, Paul. Right, right on the button. I appreciate that. So, so let's move on to people who test positive. Um, now, thinking primarily, those of us on this on this uh, conference are are working in the ambulatory setting. What treatment should we offer them? Should we be considering any medications, in particular chloroquine, with or without azithromycin? So, the despite widespread distribution of data from a small French study that looked favorable for the combination of chloroquine and azithromycin. I want to underscore this. There is no proven effective therapy for coronavirus infection as of right now. Um, even though that study got a lot of attention and was amplified by the press and by some certain political leaders, uh, in fact, uh, there were many flawed aspects of the study, and then a, another study, which came out of China, showed no benefit. In addition, we now have some observational data that people receiving chloroquine for malaria prevention do not appear to be protected from getting uh, COVID-19. 
As a result, I would strongly discourage us in ambulatory care from prescribing chloroquine and or azithromycin to people who either don't have the infection and are worried they might get it or have the infection and are convalescing at home. Um, this is very, very important. There are already critical shortages of chloroquine. There are people who need chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine for proven medical indications. And I would definitely encourage people to limit the use of these drugs to uh, controlled clinical studies, which may be ongoing in your institutions, or allow people in the hospital who might be getting this uh, under very close observation and uh, in perhaps in situations that appear to be deteriorating. So do not recommend using it in the ambulatory setting. Okay. Um, what about, for example, our asthmatics or our, our patients who have allergic rhinitis? Is it safe to place them on a course of oral steroids or they're using an inhaled steroid or a nasal steroid? Are these safe or not? This is a really good question. And in fact, I want to credit you. All your questions are very good and questions that we've been receiving regularly. Uh, there are some observational data that corticosteroids might worsen the course of uh, COVID-19. I should also say there are some observational data that they may help in certain people who have very severe infection and may improve short-term survival in those with hosp hospitalized with the disease. Right now, I would advise that primary care clinicians continue to prescribe the necessary medications for their patients with asthma and COPD, and that includes, if needed, inhaled or systemic corticosteroids. Uh, a recommendation to stop those medications because of the circulation of this virus in the community has not been made by any group, and uh, I would endorse that uh, recommendation that we not stop these medications if they're important for management of your patients. All right. Um, any final thoughts on in the ambulatory setting uh, about over-the-counter agents or medications in general that we should be using when someone tests positive? The one question that has come up, and it was uh, really generated by a French official who advised strongly against the use of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, um, and fever-reducing agents in general. There's, let me just comment about non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs first. Uh, as people probably are aware, the ACE2 receptor in the lungs is the site at which uh, SARS-CoV-2, uh, the etiologic agent of COVID-19, binds to lung epithelium. And it has been observed in certain uh, human and animal models that there's upregulation of ACE2 receptors in people receiving non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. So theoretically, this could make the target uh, more abundant and therefore the disease worse. In addition, if you consider the literature of antipyretics, there are some people who believe that fever is an important part of our host defense, that we evolved to develop fevers against infections, and there must therefore be a usefulness to these fevers. And as a result, we should avoid antipyretics if possible, because that allows our natural host defenses to work at their best. Uh, I will say that for every person who strongly supports this view, uh, there is another person who says, well, show me the evidence, and the evidence is all over the map. Uh, I can tell you that I do not 
typically recommend that people use antipyretics unless they really are miserable. Uh, in the current climate that we're in right now, if it's a toss-up between using uh, acetaminophen and, uh, for example, ibuprofen, I would probably choose acetaminophen. But in general, I think the best approach is to let your body take care of itself uh, as best you can without use of antipyretics. That sounds tortuous, but thank you. Um... <laughs> I didn't mean to sound tortuous. I meant to sound, I meant to sound sort of practical. Uh, sorry about that. Um, yeah, let them have fever. Um, so let's say you're a, you're a healthcare worker um, and you test positive. When can you return to work, and who are you legally obligated to notify that you turned positive? Well, um, each institution, and I assume each practice, will have its own guidelines, and they, they likely will be adopted from what CDC is issuing. And CDC has been updating this on a regular basis as testing has become more widely available. Uh, they have advocated that people be without fever, even without using antipyretics. So let's go back and say you have been using antipyretics, and that's, you know, I'm not saying that that's wrong, but some people do, some people don't, that your respiratory symptoms are better. You're no longer coughing. You're no longer short of breath. And you have uh, access to a test. And the testing guidance right now from CDC is that you get two negative tests from nasopharyngeal swabs separated by at least 24 hours uh, before you go back to work. And so this is, uh, you know, a test-based strategy. The CDC has acknowledged that testing is not available to everyone right yet. And so now they have a non-test-based strategy of return to work as well, which is that you have recovered completely for at least three days since your fever's gone and your respiratory symptoms are gone, and it's been at least a week since your symptoms started. And, and these data, and this, this non-test-based strategy is, I uh, believe, rooted in the fact that in studies of uh, COVID-19, where they do serial testing of nasopharyngeal specimens, around seven to 10 days was the median time for clearance of the infection from the respiratory tract, with the important caveat that there are some people who shed the virus for much longer. And then now I'm going to say I don't know whether that's clinically significant or not, but it could be. Um, there is a prolonged shedding that occurs in some individuals, even people who've completely recovered from the infection. So there's a lot of uncertainties here, but I do want to emphasize that this test-based strategy is increasingly being utilized by hospitals uh, and, and uh, would assume that that's going to be the case increasingly uh, in the community as well. Um, all right. How about the flip side? You're a healthcare worker with symptoms. You've got some fevers, maybe a sore throat, and you test negative. What advice should we do for ourselves? So people who test negative for SARS-CoV-2, there are two, two possibilities. They have compatible sy symptoms. One is that the test was a false negative. And here I have to say that with the uh, rapid development of testing that has occurred, remember this disease was only really fully described in January of this year, and we're only in mid-March, that with the rapid development of testing, the test is not perfect. It's not 100% sensitive. So if you really feel like you have this infection, 
uh, and you tested negative, it is worth going back for a second test. Um, as painful as it is, uh, I, you know, a nasopharyngeal specimen collection is, is not comfortable, but I would recommend a second test for those people. If, in fact, uh, you're improving and everything is going well uh, and uh, you tested negative, then, then I would assume you've had one of the many respiratory viral infections that still circulate out there. Unfortunately, for clinical practice, um, there's a lot of overlap between the clinical presentation of all these viruses. And, uh, you know, pe people aren't protected from getting regular respiratory viral infections just because we now have a new one that's entered our, our, uh, our community. So, so in those cases, what we typically do is recommend that people completely recover from their respiratory viral infection as usual, and then they can return to work. Uh, that's, that's been standard, standard advice, standard practice from infection control and infectious disease doctors for years, and I'm sure something that's very, very familiar to primary care clinicians who are listening. And I just want to follow up. I was tested a little bit over a week ago, and if you stay nice and relaxed and you have a, a, a gentle tester, um, it, was, it was not that uncomfortable. <laughs> it, it's certainly a new experience, but it's not that uncomfortable. Yes. All I right, do want well, to... Can I, can I, Frank, if I could just mention this, because people may not be familiar with nasopharyngeal testing, uh, which is not the same thing as a nasal swab. Um, you know, people who have collected nasal swabs, for example, for MRSA colonization, nasopharyngeal testing is a, is a, you know, is a fairly long probe that's inserted directly posteriorly uh, until you reach some resistance, and then it's twirled. And, and, when, it's done, and that's, when it's done that way, uh, it collects the cells from the nasopharyngeal epithelium uh, that can be then tested for the virus. Okay. So let's go right to the news this morning that um, there are a variety of manufacturers selling um, ser uh, serological tests, a uh, blood test using a finger stick, uh, you know, a droplet of blood uh, detecting antibodies. And they're selling these um, outside the U.S. and possibly being FDA approved here. Um, can you give us an update on when we might be seeing a, a, a serum-based testing of antibody presence? Well, there, there are two reasons why having a serology would be useful. One would be the diagnostics, because uh, pairing um, direct molecular detection of the virus with a serologic test might enable us to pick up other cases. But more importantly, also would be a marker of immunity, uh, and we would be able to see uh, the full spectrum of this illness because we would be able to di diagnose people who've had it and maybe didn't even know it or just thought it was a bad cold or even just a regular cold or even asymptomatic acquisition. Uh, and until we have a serology, we really don't have a good sense of that. Um, I'm, I'm sure that some of the clinicians listening recall West Nile virus when it came to the United States in the early 2000s. West Nile virus uh, initially was terrifying and encephalitis, and it's true, uh, but it turned out that only uh, b between 0.5 and 1% of people who got it actually got encephalitis. So, you know, we only knew that after doing serologic testing afterwards. Most people were asymptomatic. I, I don't expect to be, have quite that low attack rate with, with uh, SARS-CoV-2, but, but who knows? Um, anyway, uh, so it's important to have a serologic test one thing I want to emphasize is even though the FDA and CDC, uh, perhaps because uh, they, they, they now fully embrace the seriousness of the situation, uh, are fast-tracking some of these tests. And 
One caveat is that when the tests are fast-tracked, we actually don't know how reliable they are yet. It's not as if we have a gold standard for infection, uh, and, and as a result, uh, people should be at least cautious about an overly interpreting the results of these tests until we have a better sense of their test performance. However, it wouldn't be impossible to imagine a period of time, uh, weeks to months from now, when we do have a more validated serologic test, and then uh, clinicians are going to be faced with the dilemma of what does this actually mean for our patients if they test positive. Yeah, there's there's always a new dilemma added with any any intervention or or, or diagnostic test. I, I yep. agree. Um, many people uh, have written in with the question, "What should we be telling our patients who take um, ACE inhibitors or ARBs?" Uh, can you give us some insights? In, uh, we know you mentioned already the why, but any recommendations on what we should tell our patients about these drugs? So. Um, yeah, the why is, is fascinating because there are theoretical reasons why ACEs, and in particular ARBs, might be beneficial as well as harmful in this disease. And the epidemiologic association between having hypertension and having more severe COVID-19 has been seen in practically every study. So people are postulating, why is it? Is it the hypertension is it the associated cardiovascular disease with hypertension? Is it the treatment for hypertension? And if it is the treatment for hypertension, maybe it's the ACEs and the ARBs. So lots of uh, mechanistic debates. But what I would say is the American College of Cardiology and the other official bodies who have come out and said the following is what I would recommend. They are saying that people who need these drugs for their underlying cardiac or renal disease should continue them uh, and, and awaiting better evidence that these medications are either harmful or helpful with this disease. Uh, I, I am aware that there are some observational data coming soon that should help clarify this a bit, but I, for now, would endorse the recommendations by, for example, the American College of Cardiology. So do not stop them. Uh, and uh, if they need them, they need them. And there are data that people who stop these medications have difficulties, not surprisingly, with worsening renal function or with uh, worsening blood pressure control, et cetera. So for now, these treatments should be continued and uh, keep, keep, stay tuned. Okay. Um, I, I, we continue to have really great questions, but I, I want to ask one final question about treatment and then move on to some broader things. Um, Over-the-counter agents like cough medicines, are they safe? Is it okay to take honey? Um, for people who have some respiratory symptoms, should we be prescribing albuterol? Yeah, I, I think those, those are all very legitimate symptom reduction strategies that uh, you know as primary care clinicians better than anyone, that they're useful for some people, and there's no reason not to prescribe them um, or recommend them. We're having a bit of an um, inhaled albuterol um, shortage uh, out this way, and I'm not sure if that's being experienced around the rest of the country, but uh, I'm, I'm trying to save our albuterol for primarily folks with, uh, with, with known asthma or COPD. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Uh, you know, it's, it's remarkable the shortages that have cropped up in the course of this epidemic, some of them more predictable than others. 
Uh, you know, this is a, you know, even though we've learned that that COVID-19 can have gastrointestinal symptoms as well as respiratory symptoms, that would not in any way explain shortages of toilet paper. I um I worked at a community health center for many years before coming out out this way, and people would routinely steal the toilet paper from our bathrooms. And toilet paper is far more important um, than we probably appreciate. Um, quickly, let's let's move on to some broader questions. Um, the Chinese and South Korea data demonstrate that they're starting to open up the population, and they're doing that based upon the concept that uh, a majority of the population um, is probably has some degree of immunity. Can you explain a little bit about the theory of herd immunity with this infection and, and maybe predict a timeline as to when uh, life might return to normal? First, I want to say that the Chinese and South Korean experience is not based solely on herd immunity. It's also based on plummeting incidence numbers. And the reason their incidence dropped so fast is that they had extremely aggressive testing campaigns and isolation in particular in China. Uh, in, in China, a person who had a fever was evaluated at a special fever clinic um, was tested immediately, and that test included not just a nasopharyngeal swab for respiratory viruses, but also sometimes a CT scan of the chest. And anyone who had an indication of COVID-19 was separated immediately from their family. Uh, and, and that kind of uh, strategy is something that, that we cannot do in the United States in a systematic way. Uh, so, so we're doing some of that, but, but not to that degree. And so with that strategy and within South Korea, the incredibly aggressive testing strategy, which has found many, many asymptomatic and mildly symptomatic cases and then isolated them, um, they are able to bring their numbers way down. And by bringing their numbers way down, they, they are cautiously reopening their societies. Um, it is true that we are hopeful that this infection will generate enough community immunity, which is also called herd immunity, that new infections cannot uh, take place at the same pace. And that happened most recently uh, with other, another outbreak, which is Zika. Uh, Zika would come into a society that was, that, that was susceptible in the tropics and infect a huge number of susceptible individuals very quickly. And then because it then had this outside the body uh, vector, the mosquito, the mosquitoes didn't get infected anymore. And then the disease incidence dropped. Um, uh, COVID-19 doesn't require mosquito. It's person-to-person -person spread. And so the, the whole concept of herd immunity will depend on whether we, after getting the infection, no matter how symptomatic, uh, are then protected from getting it again, which then leads to, you know, the, the most, probably one of the most important epidemiologic questions to which we don't have a firm answer yet is, can a person get reinfected? Uh, it is not known. Uh, there are animal models that suggests that antibodies that are generated in response to this infection are protective. And that, of course, is the strategy being uh, exploited for vaccine development. Um, but, but we have to be very honest. Uh, we don't know. And I'm sure that everyone has heard the wise words of Dr. Tony Fauci, who recently said, you know, it's not our timeline, it's the virus's timeline. And I think that's very well put. We have to be extremely humble and realize that this is a, a marathon and not a sprint for us here in the United States. 
I, I like that 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 uh, saying that he offered, and, and I appreciate you you bringing it up again because I think it's true. We we just we just don't know. Uh, I'd like to go back to a very practical question. I'm in the office. I'm seeing someone who has classic symptoms, has a fever. How do I decide whether to send them home and tell them to drink a lot of water and and avoid people, or when do I decide if their shortness of breath warrants being sent to the emergency room? Okay, first uh, strategy is to avoid bringing that person into the office. And I know that that's easier said than done, but one of the remarkable changes that's happened very quickly uh, here uh, is that telemedicine and telephone medicine really need to be amplified, and we need to discourage people from coming in to general practices as much as possible for our own safety as well as the safety of our other patients. Uh, Many places are setting up respiratory clinics, and those respiratory clinics will be staffed by clinicians who are wearing personal protection equipment. Uh, I can't uh, emphasize this strongly enough for, for the people listening. But let's say you get contacted by one of your patients and you've got all the classic symptoms. The, the real concerning symptom is shortness of breath. Uh, people who develop shortness of breath while uh, having COVID-19 um, need to be in the hospital. They need to be supported with supplemental oxygen and, if necessary, uh, mechanical ventilation and even, even ECMO, uh, which is an extreme form of uh, cardiopulmonary support. Uh, this is very very important. People who are short of breath should not stay home because there can be a pretty rapid deterioration should that occur. Um, so that, that would be important. I, I will dis- say that there has been a described biphasic nature to the illness in some people where they have initial you know, flu-like sensations and cough, and then they feel like they're getting a little better for a few days, and then suddenly things start to get worse. And the theory here is that after initial viral uh, damage to this epithelium, there's this pause, and then there's a very robust host response with incredibly high inflammatory cytokines that triggers even more lung damage. And it's that second phase that turns out to be so uh, lethal in the people who have severe COVID-19. Excellent. Well, thank you. So any any real progression of respiratory symptoms um, probably makes, you know, should make you concerned. And and just, I think most of us in primary care have heard the call not to bring people in. Um, but I, I've seen two people this week who came in, one with abdominal pain, one with foot pain. And um, when they got here, their their real reason for coming was that they were worried they were COVID-19 positive. So it, yeah. it's uh, it's kind of fun. Um, we're we're approaching the the 10 a.m. mark, and I'd like to keep going because we have some more fantastic questions. Paul, can you give us a few more minutes? Sure. Okay. Um, I know th- this area, the, the the thoughts on this area may be outside your specialty, but any special advice you can give us for our patients who are pregnant or nursing, um, or chil- have small children? Yeah. Well, uh, just to take the easy easy uh, part first, which is one of the truly, um, you know, silver linings in this, this, this infection is that children really don't seem to get severe infection from this virus, which is poorly understood why, but it's just, it's just wonderful observation. There are some children, of course, who get sick with it, but it, it, is, it seems to be sparing babies and children 
to a, to a wonderful degree. Uh, so that, that's the good news. Uh, the, the slightly uh, more sinister part about that is the children probably do get the infection and can transmit it to others without their really having much symptoms at all. But that's that's a separate issue. Um, there's not that much known right now about pregnant women. We know that pregnancy is really a risk factor for bad flu outcomes, so much so that we recommend flu treatment in pregnant women. Um, and we also emphasize the importance of the flu vaccine for pregnant women. So far, observational data do not suggest that it's necessarily worse, that COVID-19 is necessarily worse in this population. But as, as you know, uh, pregnancy does change respiratory mechanics quite substantially and circulatory um, profiles substantially. And as a result, it could be that it's a risk factor for severe disease. And then there are now, just in the last few days, some reports of uh, what appear to be maternal-to-child transmission of the virus, but encouragingly without any particular consequences to the, to the baby who was born with it. There does not appear to be a congenital syndrome, at least not as far as we know. Uh, and uh, as a result, you know, it's really a kind of wait and see until we get more data. Okay. Um, a practical question. You have a patient with COPD who develops a bit of an exacerbation. Uh, you mentioned earlier that we should go ahead and practice the way we normally practice. It's okay to place them on steroids. Um, is there any recommendation about uh, aggressiveness with various antibiotics or a change in how we might approach the decision to use antibiotics? You know, I, I, I think people with COPD and structural lung disease fall outside of the antibiotic uh, avoidance that we ID doctors uh, sort of constitutionally spew out all the time. We're always saying, don't use antibiotics, don't use antibiotics, don't use antibiotics, except, you know, people who have uh, COPD and people with bronchiectasis and people with underlying lung disease are actually at much greater risk of getting bacterial superinfections. And, and there's decent data that antibiotics really help them. So I would continue to use antibiotics as you would uh, in a non-COVID-19 era. That, that's totally appropriate strategy. And, and uh, what about patients who are immunosuppressed, like someone who might be on a biologic for rheumatoid arthritis or someone who might be on some other agents? Any special thoughts about how aggressive we should be with them? Well, one question that came up early on was, should you encourage them to stop their treatment? Uh, and and I, uh, you know, I work at an institution that has this huge and wonderful rheumatology department. And, and so many of, their, many of the rheumatologists reached out to me and asked that question. Um, from a policy perspective, that, that is not recommended uh, at all. Uh, and even though immunosuppressed patients probably do fare worse uh, in COVID-19 than non-immunosuppressed patients, so far uh, there haven't been an overwhelmingly large number of such cases described, which is it, sort of encouraging so in, in, some, in some ways. So I, I feel like for now we should not make any changes to the way that we treat um, such individuals. Uh, pending further data, and as far as whether they should get a course of antibiotics more liberally than than others, it would be really depend on the situation. Um, a little bit about long term. Any thoughts about um, post infection lifelong immunity and any predictions on a timeline for a COVID nineteen vaccine? Well, uh, you know, I've mentioned this before, but my family teases me because I'm like perpetually optimistic, even under sometimes very, <laughs> very hard times. 
I, I think there will be enough immunity for us to get over this uh, hump uh, of pe infections and, and that we will not have a lot of reinfection. But of course, I don't know. Uh, and we'll have to just wait and see. As far as vaccine development, encouragingly, there definitely are very smart people working on developing vaccine already. And they're even given a first vaccine in phase one studies. Just a reminder, though, that vaccine development is not just about you know, injecting people with antigen, it's also about safety, which is very important, and also about efficacy. And as a result, vaccine timelines are at least a year away and probably longer. Wow. That's, that's wild. Um, because I think it's, 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 uh, it's one of our hopes that, it, that there's, a, there's a good solution here. Um, a quick question. People have many questions about using or reusing masks in their clinical care of patients and cloth masks. Would you mm -hmm. just briefly comment? Sure. Um, you know, one of the uh, weaknesses that this outbreak has exposed in the American healthcare system is that we did not have uh, surge capacity in personal protection equipment. And as a result, we're in a phase right now where we have to make do with what we have and uh, in this phase, as we're trying to ramp up production, uh, reusing masks is better than nothing. Uh, and uh, I would strongly encourage that. Uh, the same is true for things like bandanas, et cetera. Now, they're not perfect. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's, it's in some ways a sad comment on, on what we as a very rich society have invested in, that we don't have this personal protection equipment available for everyone, for, for, you know, indef indefinitely. But, but for now, in the, a period of limited resources, the reuse of masks is appropriate. Uh, and, you know, some institutions are moving towards a one mask a day policy. Others uh, are looking into ways of sterilizing N95 masks. Uh, and uh, that's all in order to get through this period until the mask shortage is relieved. Um. I'd like to end with, with a few questions, again, for the gen that are being asked of us from the general population. How long does the virus stay viable or transmissible uh, on, on surfaces, um, plastic and cardboard and, you know, like things that are delivered to your home? Can you just give a bit on that? Well, uh, we have a, a, a research letter in the New England Journal of Medicine that describes a very controlled experiment where they put the virus onto various surfaces. And, uh, you know, these kind of experiments are artificial, but they do at least tell us that, yes, the virus does survive on surfaces, just like almost every respiratory virus. And, uh, you know, it varied depending on the material. Uh, it, it was uh, sort of, uh, I think, the shortest on cardboard and the longest on plastic and steel, and, and uh, also short on copper. I don't know why they tested copper. I didn't but know I, I why will, they tested I, copper either. I thought that was Yeah, I mean, maybe it has to do with, with pennies, but who uses pennies anymore? Uh, I, I just want to, I think the, the, the key message on these studies is not like the specific number of hours that the virus is on the surface. It's that, for example, if you're, if you're living in a house with someone who has COVID-19, and, and they're being sequestered in their room, uh, those surfaces that they're breathing onto and coughing onto are potentially contaminated. And so one should not touch them if possible. And if one does touch them, wash your hands immediately. Uh, so that's, that's what I would recommend. So. I, I, I agree. Uh, last question towards patients. It was asked, um, should we be 
encouraging our patients to wear uh, surgical face masks and gloves if they go to the grocery store or they, they go out and um, have the potential to touch things that someone else may have touched. A any advice? So, um, you know, we, we ended up providing a bit of a mixed message with masks in the early phase of this. You know, we, we encouraged the that the public not wear masks in public, and uh, part of that was to protect our limited hospital and, and office supplies. So we were saying that they weren't useful, but at the same time we were saying that they were kind of critically important for healthcare providers. Uh, that mixed message, now we have to revise somewhat. Uh, I, I don't know that necessarily a mask in public is, is, a, is bad advice. I don't know if it's good advice. I think we should be more uh, honest about that. Um, I do think that the message that we've been saying from the start about hand washing still applies. And if you've gone out to the grocery store and you're coming back in and you put your groceries away, that is a great time to wash your hands. In fact, there are multiple great times to wash your hands. But anytime you've left the house and come back in, left your apartment, come back in, good time to wash your hands. And just, just because, you know, who knows? Why not? Well, Paul, um, I, I want to stop there and thank you. This has been tremendously helpful. I, I also want to thank uh, those of you who are listening in. You have many more questions. I want to first reassure you that within two hours, uh, you will be able to listen to this entire broadcast over again. So if we've gone too fast and covered too much information or if you want to double-check things, please be patient. That will be available to you through the PrimeMed website very quickly. Um, two final thoughts. There are two other things that we can do that help our patients, especially in primary care. Number one is that as this pandemic and the critical illness of some of our patients progresses, there will continue to be a blood shortage. So if patients feel the urge or the need to do something suggest they go give blood. Now's a good time for them to be, they have the time, they have the opportunity, call blood donation centers uh, and give it to them. And the other thing is for us, both for our personally and our patients, the number one thing that's happening to me this week is that I am spending a great deal of time calming patients' anxiety. Treating anxiety is critical and I have had the good fortune to have two therapists in my community that have offered to do some phone-based counseling. So if you have patients that are just doing poorly, um, offer them that opportunity. Uh, just like telemedicine, none of us know if we're going to get reimbursed, but people have the time and are willing to help. Finally, I'd like to dedicate this last 45 minutes to all of you on the front line. I'm very grateful. I know our patients are grateful that we're there for them, and I thank you. And lastly, for those of you who asked, my friend Phil still remains on a ventilator, but hopefully after two weeks we'll begin to see some improvement. You take care all, and thanks again. We'll be back probably within a week or so with an update. Thank you again, Paul. Thanks, Frank. Bye now.